Yeah, even even today. Oh, sorry, I meant to say hi, everyone. How are we all? Hi. How are we all, Tim? Going good. Um, even today, uh, this sermon was is uh, the end of this sermon is kind of happening now, I guess. Like with um, just Victory Life's generosity in giving us this building for Sunday, we were probably going to be in a classroom. That would have been fun, sitting at little tiny desks. Um, but they were very generous and they gave this to us. Uh, those guys over there that sing way better than us. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, I am speaking for myself. Sing way better than me. Sing way better than me. The smiles on the smiles on every face over there is like great. So I hope that what we talk about this morning will encourage us to, you know, be more open and understanding and more connections and everything from our brothers and sisters from different denominations that often we like going oh those guys are weird those guys are different or let's not have anything to do with them i know a lot of us we don't like the thought of that but that's a you know that goes in our that goes through our minds a lot okay so from this sermon i hope that we can sort of have a bit of understanding of that togetherness does that make sense i hope it makes more sense as i go through so anyway um Let's go back. Let's let's step back and start with who here has been negatively affected by division. Now, hands down, if you just couldn't do long division in primary school, hey. yeah, because that was why you put your hand up, wasn't it? No, I'm not talking about saying. I'm not talking about that thing in maths. I'm not talking about long division or anything that none of us really got the hang of. Um, I'm talking about the breaking up of stuff that was once really good. People been affected by that? Like whether it's maybe like a sporting team and you know this new sort of captain comes along and they're really headstrong and they get a lot of people out of like noses out of joint and then a lot of people leave and the team's never the same. Or maybe like you're in school or work and your, your, your friend circles had a bit of a split, bit of a falling out, and then you were really close with people, but all of a sudden there's this kind of like dividing line. You don't know how to, mm, I don't, you don't know how to associate with that, pe- that person or uh, things are a bit awkward, a bit strange beside you, behind, between you. We know what we're talking about. It's like this emotional kind of drain that we have. So... We know that this division idea, this division being split up and stuff, it feels bad. We hate it, okay? We know deep inside of ourselves, like culturally, we've got this, just as humans, we've got this built-in code that our default setting is not to like it. But you look at all the even secular organizations that are all for, you know, bringing people together and pulling down barriers and, you know, all these sorts of things. Like we have all these great movements. And that's because inherently we know that this being split apart in this division thing is bad. All right, so we worked out that division sucks. So today in the mega series, we are, hmm, we move into a time of, let's say, permanent division of the people of Israel um, and like disunity for, for the whole nation of Israel. See, so cracks have formed in the nation, sort of after King Saul's reign, his son Ishbosheth, 
Bosch chef. Ishbosheth? Is that it? Yeah. And his military commander, Abner, they've, um, they've sort of conspired to drag some of the tribes away from David, but then under David, anointed king, he sort of starts his kingship with these campaigns to bring everybody together. So cracks sort of formed then, but, um, you know, King uh, David has come through with his military might. He's consolidated the kingdom. Uh, King Solomon has come along. Luki took us through Solomon really well last week, I thought. Um, Solomon's come along and sort of grown. There's this, the nation's gone through this massive influx of wealth and just general revere from all the other nations and stuff around it. Um, the nation's gone through this great period, but Solomon dies. And so the kingdom now come, falls under the rule of Solomon's heir, a guy called Rehoboam. Let's call him Rio. Rio, Rio and his speed wagon. Not many people got that one. That was a sad. <laughs> that was sad. No, so Rehoboam um, is this new king. So he's Solomon's legitimate heir to the throne, okay? Rehoboam, when Solomon dies, Rehoboam comes in. Rehoboam's about 41 years old. Now, remember, Solomon's reign was 40 years long. So Rehoboam's sort of, he's grown up and has seen Solomon's whole reign. He's, he's seen Solomon's whole kingdom. He's seen the, 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 the splendor of it. He's seen the glory of it, like all the affluence of King Solomon's reign, like the, the wealth and the wisdom and the women and all the power. Rehoboam's grown up just knowing this. It's just been normal sort of stuff. Okay, this, that's what he's seen as he's grown up. So, let's, let's read a little bit. Okay, now before we do, we'll just, we'll just briefly jump into... Well, you can start turning to 1 Kings chapter 12. That's where we'll read from. So, to set us up... Um, Rehoboam's gone to this place called Shechem to crown himself king. So Solomon's died. He's going to say, all right, I'm, I'm going to take on kingship. This is a bit of a strategic move because Shechem's kind of like the capital of this northern, these northern group of tribes that almost broke away. So he's kind of doing a bit of a power play here. He's going into their territory and saying, hey, I'm your king. I'm going to be crowned king here. So it's kind of his way of trying to bring everything together. So let's read, and we'll read in verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, so we're going to talk about that guy in a couple of weeks, this Jeroboam guy. So as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him, and Jeroboam... So this Jeroboam guy, and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Rehoboam's, remember, Solomon's son, who's crowning himself king here. And they say, verse 4, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now lighten the hard service of your father and this heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Now, I know this might be a little bit of a stretch for some of our memories, but remember when we looked at King Saul um, and the people come to Samuel and they say, hey, give us a king like everyone else around us. And God's 
Samuel's distressed by this. He goes to God and God says, no, give the people what they want, but tell them what sort of um, toll our king is going to have on them. Like he's going to take your sons, your daughters, you know, your, your livestock, your servants, you know, he's, he's going to put a heavy toll on you. That was God's warning. Now, 120-ish years later, after they've gone through reigns of Saul and David and especially Solomon, the debt collector has come knocking with his baseball bat. All right, this heavy toll of this king has finally made sense to the people and they're like, oh, we've got to get out from under this, this heavy burden that the kings have put on us. Like, we've got to get out from here. Like, this is too heavy. Like, Rehoboam, we need this heavy burden taken away from us. Please lighten the load that your father Solomon put on us. Okay? So... During, so Solomon says, uh, sorry, Rehoboam says, okay, uh, give me three days to think about it. Three days. So he goes away and consults two different people groups on what he should do about this. Two different ones. Firstly, let's read verse 6. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. So that's pretty wise words from these old guys. Hey, they understand this this true meaning of what real leadership looks like. Serve the people, serve the people, and they'll serve you. It's like a sort of symbiotic kind of relationship there. And they understood that. Verse 8, but he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your fathers put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to the people who said to you, said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but your but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, okay, this is what you say to them. My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My Father, discipline you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. Probably just a more hardcore type of whip. Maybe it had little scorpions attached to it. Who knows? No, that's ridiculous. But you do, know, do you notice how Rehoboam's, uh, he's, he's gone with these two, the two groups, how he's associated with the two groups. He's gone to the old guys, sort of as like a sort of pain service to them. He says, what are you, what do you think I should do? What do you think I should do? But then he goes to the younger guys and he goes, how are we going to advise? What are we going to say to the people? So he's already thrown himself in with, he's already like identified with these younger sort of rat-packy kind of dudes that he's, um, that he's grown up with. And a lot of these guys are probably his friends and those sorts of stuff, those sorts of things. So why does he do it? Like maybe he wants to look tough in front of his friends. Maybe he doesn't, you know, 
Maybe there's a bit of peer pressure going on there. Maybe they're egging him on a little bit. Maybe they're having drinks at their, their thing and they're just like, hey, we should, we should smash these people. Maybe we should, you know? Let's get as much out of them as we can. Maybe they're doing that. Maybe they're just being silly and immature. But I think the real reason, I think, that Rehoboam does this is because he's, he's just been generally accustomed to this mad, crazy wealth that he's seen in Solomon's kingdom. See, he's, he's grown up and he's just surrounded by just lavish luxuries and everything, like the splendor of Solomon's court. Like there was nations coming from everywhere just to pay homage to this guy. Like he's just so wise, he's so wealthy. Here, let's give you some more um, gold and spices and animals and whatever. We'll give them to you because, well, you're great, you know. That's what Solomon's kingdom was like. And so Rehoboam seeing this and he's grown up in this, he doesn't know any different to this. He's just like, well, this needs to be mine as well. So I think this is what's happened. Like, he can't be seen as to sort of let the nation slide away from its zenith that um, it was sort of at under David and Solomon. He, he seems to think that, that, that if he was to be lenient on the people or just sort of, um, you know, even concede just a little bit, that that might be seen as being weak or kind is probably another word for what he thinks is weak. Or self-sacrificing might be another thing that he thinks is weak. You know what I mean? You know where I'm getting, getting with, with this? And in his mind, oh, yuck, that can't happen. No, I can't give in to this. Now, I can only sort of imagine what it's like to grow up in that sort of crazy wealth because, well, as me growing up, me and my brothers, my parents weren't super flush with cash. We had, you know, we had the essentials, but we didn't have, you know, luxuries lavished on us or anything like that. But there is a guy who I think does have a little bit of a feel for what it's like growing up with insane wealth. He's one of the richest men in the world. At least the only one that I could find that's actually gone on record that actually talks about how wealth affected his life. His name's Bill Gates. We're all, we're all familiar with this guy, aren't we? Just have a think about who Bill Gates might be while I have a sip. So anyway, everyone has known Bill, Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft, this poll's really in the way, hey. Like, I'm, I get here and I can't see Alan and I get over here and I can't see Tim. <sighs> um, train of thought. Sorry, mate? Yeah, come back. Yeah, I know. Come back. It's a distraction. Thanks, Parky. Thanks for the reminder. So, Bill Gates, founder, founder of Microsoft. Worth, what is he? Worth like a hundred and something, probably billion dollars or give or take a few Scrooge McDuck money pits, all right? He's got so much cash, so much, okay? Just ridiculously wealthy. But he's actually put some thought into how this um, will affect his children because him and his wife, they have three kids, okay? And he's gone on the record and said, this is in a, um, this is what he said in, a, uh, in an interview with the Daily Mail in the UK, he said, these are his words, our kids will receive a great education and some money so they're never going to be poorly off. So insert in here $10 million inheritance per, chi per child. That's still pretty sweet cash <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, they're going to receive some money. So he just assumes $10 million is some money, but whatever. It's not billions. Some money so they are never going to be poorly off, but they'll have to go out and have their own career. 
it's not a favour to kids to have them have huge sums of wealth. It distorts anything that they might do in creating their own path. That's pretty cool. That's pretty... It's a good... I, I suppose I was just... When, when I read that, I was just like, well, at least he sort of acknowledged it. Like, so many kids that, you know, they see their... They just inherit all this cash and they just turn crazy like, you know, Paris Hilton or someone like that. Anyway, so the vast, vast, vast majority of the wealth in the, the Gates Foundation is going to, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the kids are just going to get a little bit each. So, so, so sorry kids, you know, no Tony Stark or, um, or you know, who else? Bruce Wayne, sort of underground R&D labs or anything like that for them. So... A little bit unlucky for those guys, but now I know Bill Gates. He's not, he's not like an arbiter of full truth and wisdom and everything. But I consider him to be a fairly wise businessman. So he's pretty clued on to sort of, okay, how do I want my kids to show up, like turn out? What's this going to look like? And I find it interesting that he makes the point that it distorts like this crazy amounts of wealth. It distorts anything that they might do in creating their own path. And I think it's this distortion of life that I think Rehoboam's kind of suffering here. As when, when he rejects the good wisdom from the old guys and takes the young, harsh, brash, sort of self-serving wisdom from the younger Rat Pack, his friends that he runs in, okay? It's distorted, his, it's distorted his view of what's normal. It's distorted his view of other people. It's distorted his view of... Um, of his title, it's distorted his view of what other people are there for. His only understanding is other people are there to serve him, make him wealthy. Okay? People, other people are there to be used. So it's left him full of this greed, and he's too proud to pronounce it. So let's see what this attitude leads to. Let's jump into verse 12 and we'll read some more. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam. On the third day, all right, so the king, he, he's here. Well, not quite the king yet, but he's probably sitting on a throne. The people come to hear his decision. Like, what are you going to do? And he says, come to me around the, again on the third day. So that's what he said. So the people have come. Verse 13, and the king answered the people harshly. And forsaking the counsel of the, that the old man had given him, He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah, we'll have more on him next week, I think, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the king of Nabat. And when all Israel, here's the, key, here's the key outcome, it's what happens, verse 16, and when all Israel heard that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. And we'll leave it there. So his Rehoboam's pride, his greed, his lack of empathy, his harshness. What's it led to? Exactly, a division, a split. Okay, these northern tribes, they've gone off and they're like, we've got no part 
in this descendancy from David. We don't want it. We go away. You guys go that way. We're going there. We'll leave Judah as a tribe down there by itself. And us 10, 11 tribes or whatever, we'll scoot up north and we'll make our own kingdom. So Rehoboam's harshness is split open the nation. They basically just flipped him the bird and they told him to rack off that he's not their king. So anyway, what happens next? The northern tribes, they gather around this Jeroboam character as their king. And they make Shechem their capital. And so Rehoboam, he gets his nose out of joint. And he sends up to drag these, these, this rebellion back. He, he sends up, guess who he sends up? Does he send up like the Minister of Diplomacy? What does it say in the Bible? Has anyone checked it? Does anyone know? Sends up his, basically his Minister of Forced Labor. So this is a guy who's basically just a slave driver. He sends them, he sends that guy up to drag these guys back. How does that go? It's kind of like robbing a beehive with a chainsaw, isn't it? It's just like, <laughs> you know, like it's stu- it's a stupid idea. It's a stupid. Like, what was he thinking was going to happen? Anyway, the people grab this minister of forced labour and they go, no, stone him to death. And then Rehoboam has to then flee Shechem back to Jerusalem for his own life, for his own safety. So anyway, there's a little bit more recorded about Rehoboam um, in chapters 14 and wherever else around the invasions from Egypt and the fortified cities and whatever. Go, go away, totally go away through the week and read up on the rest of his life. It is great stuff. It's all history. It's all good stuff in there. But this is where we're going to leave Rehoboam now. We've got our lesson. We've, we understand where Rehoboam's at, okay? So, what do we see when we look at Rehoboam? What do we see? What are some of the things we see? We see a pretty good recipe on how to be a power-wielding maniac, don't we? And we see a pretty good recipe on how to split up God's people pretty effectively. What else do we see? Yeah, exactly. Like he, yeah, like. Or at least he wanted someone else to say what he was. He's kind of like needs affirmation from like his his friends and very easily swayed. Yeah, that's right, Nozzy. That's right. In fact, he could probably have really written. And I love that there was a punk band in the '90s that actually, you know, you know the um, you know the old. It's a well-known like marketing sort of business book. You know how to win friends and influence people. Oh, yeah. There was a punk band in the '90s that had an album called how to make enemies and irritate people. And I think if Rehoboam could write a book, it'd probably be that book. Like, he's, he's done a terrible job of bringing people together. And that's all he's done. He's just made a whole bunch of enemies. He's irritated, like, a whole heap of people. But what we can really get out of this Rehoboam is we can look at and we can see the spirit behind disunity and we can see the spirit behind division. All right? It's made up of things like what Rehoboam shows, power and greed and just harshness and ego and immaturity and not wanting to listen to older, wiser people and not wanting to just look at history and stuff like that. It's just a real rashness is that spirit that leads to disunity. But, but as the music starts, but we as Christians, okay, what's, it, what's our job? 
We as Christians, we're followers of Christ. We're followers of the way. You know, as, as Christians were called earlier, in the, like way back in the first sort of century. Okay? We, we aren't called just to look at division and go, yeah, that guy's causing division. What a filthy heretic. And point the finger and back away. That's not what we as Christians are called to do, is it? What are we as Christians called to do? We're about, meant to be about unity. We're meant to be about bringing God's people together. We're meant to be about putting out disagreements and arguments and all these sorts of things. We're meant to be about bringing, we're, we're meant to be about unity. Where do we get that idea from? Jesus' high priestly prayer, John 17. Let's read some of it. John 17, and he, Jesus in his, in his prayer to God the Father in this, he's, um, he, he first starts talking about his disciples that are with him. And then he moves into this period of talking about and, and praying for future followers of him. Okay, and in verse 22, he's, he's, he's talking about us, you know, future followers of him, of who love Jesus and are following in his way. Okay, and his prayer to the Lord, God, Father, is that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, that, that, you, know, you could preach a sermon just on that phrase. Like, what does that even look like? You know, Jesus and God, the Father, they're one, and Jesus is praying that his people would be one. And then he, well, we've got a long way to go in that. But then he goes even further. He's like, um, and then he describes the thing. He, he's, he's just like, okay, I in them, so his people gathered together in, in unity, I'm coming into them, I'm going to be in them. And then you in me, so he's talking about, so the fathers come into the equation there in, in, this, in Jesus. So you and me. And then later on, and as, as we see with, with Paul's writing, it's just like, so, his, so the, the, the God's people are here, believers, followers of Jesus, Jesus in them, the Father in them, all bound together with like the Holy Spirit in perfect love. Like that's the picture of unity that we're meant to be pulling for and pushing for. And driving for. That's crazy, hey? Not crazy. Like, I can't think of another word to say. Like, that is just an incredibly high calling, incredibly awesome end game. Like, oh, wow. So, see, if Jesus had such high, such crazy desire for this oneness, if Jesus, if Jesus had such, like, if Jesus desired this so much, then we should also. Like, this should be, like, almost a paramount thing for us to be trying to connect and try to unite and pulling together all of, our, all of God's people. So what is it that leads to this unity? What, 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 is, what is it that leads to unity? This is where the real spirit of the Rehoboam story is going to come out into the sunlight. Think of a... We can use the Rehoboam story kind of like a photographic negative. Okay, so, you know, who, who, who remembers film cameras? Cameras that had film. I was pretty young when they were sort of out. Alan does. Thanks, Al. And lots, lots of us remember them, except for probably the digital generation kids. Um, but there used to be, so you'd have like a negative. 
and then your photos were developed off that. And if you ever looked at a negative, it would look weird. It was back to front and the colors were wrong, everything was dark where it should have been light and those sorts of things. I want to kind of use Rehoboam as like a, a picture, or like a negative picture of Jesus. Because like, like as, as photos are developed off a negative, so, and so the, the dark goes light and you know, these sorts of things, it's like the, um, it's, yeah, they're, they're sort of like opposites. You, we can look at Rehoboam's picture of, of, you know, pride and arrogance and ego and wanting to use people for his own benefits and that sort of stuff and sending servants to death and slave driving people and whatever for wealth, for serving himself. Okay? Use that as a negative. And what picture, what colour picture do we get out of that? What's our picture of Jesus that we get from that? The perfect picture of real leadership, don't we? Jesus comes as a servant. All right? He serves his servants. He takes it like the old per, the old man advice, you know, that was given to Rehoboam that he rejected, you know, be a kind servant to them and they will serve you. That's Jesus, that's what Jesus shows up as. We're drawn into love by this guy because of what he's done for us. Okay? And Jesus doesn't send he doesn't put burdens on people. He lifts burdens from people. He doesn't come in and send people to their death. He dies for people. He dies for us. And so this is that kind, selflessly, um, selfless servanthood, selfless serving, I suppose. Whereas Rehoboam is selfish, Jesus is selfless, selfless serving. And that's, what, that's why we love him so much. That's why we're drawn into following him. And that's the example that he can rightly call us to because he's done that in the first place so where where do we end here I probably I just, I probably just want to refer back to Ephesians chapter 4 Parky mentioned it earlier as well but the, more so the start of the chapter where where Paul calls us to, to unity as well. And this is that, you know, you know how I was mentioning the, like what the picture of us as, as, as God's people with the, um, the Godhead looks like? You know how God, Jesus in us and the Father in Him and, and then we're all bound together in spiritual um, closeness by the Holy Spirit and love? This is where I got that from. Verse, so let's read um, Ephesians chapter 4 and we'll start in verse 1. I therefore a prisoner... For the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all. So these are the opposite fruits of Rehoboam's life, okay? These are the opposite things. These are the things that lead to good, good, um, these, these are the things that lead to unity. With all humility and gentleness, with patience and bearing with one another in love and just eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as if you were called to the one, hoping that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. All right, I've got in written in my Bible, I've got like a little double helix and I've called this spiritual DNA because I see this like so much because it's something that runs through all of us, this Holy Spirit that runs through all of us and should be tying us all together when we're in step with Him, okay? 
Like if you think, if you think cells in your body, they replicate themselves based off their little, the DNA code that's in them. That's why Luke looks like Luke. That's why um, Camille looks way hotter. You know, like it's just, you know, it's, sorry man, I love, I love you too man, but it's my beautiful wife. But you, but you know what I mean, like, like every, every cell in your body is like um, just replicating itself based off that DNA. So also for all of us, if we've got like that Holy Spirit DNA in us, then as we walk and every day and we're spending time with the Lord every day, you know, that is then how our life is, repli- that's what our life is replicated off, turning us more and more into an image of Jesus, exactly. That's where this unity thing is headed. And man, I just, I'm excited as to, you know, what we can do. That's why I'm excited, you know, with, in terms of just working with churches and stuff around the, the city. And I don't want us to just get in our own little bubble and get stale and start throwing out accusations from everybody else because that's not helpful as we've seen with Rehoboam. So I just wanted us to end now, just get in little groups of maybe two or three or maybe just four people at the most, okay? And everybody, I just want us to just pray and we just seek the unity of, like Jesus was all about, like let's seek the unity of the church and our communities and then our country because there is so much division out there and it's got to start with us who are actually called to pursue this unity idea. So I hope that was helpful. Let's um let's all get in little groups and, and, and we'll just have some time praying and then we'll then we'll do communion, hey?